Uh, we have been making our way through the Beatitudes these last few weeks because we are in a series on the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> and what we've said up until now is that these Beatitudes, taken together, they kind of make, uh, make up a profile. They give you a profile of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Remember, Jesus came preaching the good news, which is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. That's what he preached. And then he launches into this Beatitudes to describe what a person who has done that, who has repented and believed the good news and has now entered this thing called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. These Beatitudes describe the character of a person who has entered. And so it's not like each of these is a different kind of person. It's not like, you know, there are some people or some Christians who mourn and others don't mourn or some Christians who are merciful and others aren't merciful or some Christians who are pure in heart and others aren't pure in heart. The idea is, is that all followers of Jesus Christ would bear these marks, these qualities, these characteristics as part of being who they are. Now, of course, as we said last week, I just want to reiterate one more time, um, it's not like we will exhibit all these qualities to the same degree, and it's not like everyone will exhibit these qualities uh, to, to the same level, so to speak, uh, as other people within their church community. So it's not like everybody is equally merciful and everybody is equally a peacemaker and everybody is equally poor in spirit, etc. Okay? Um, and now we're going to go to the last of the Beatitudes. So we're going to look at verses basically 10 through 12 together to understand what Jesus means when he says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and then etc., etc., etc. Now, here's the first thing you got to understand, is that if these are characteristics of a follower of Jesus Christ, then that means that this has got to be the most sobering of all the Beatitudes, because it's suggesting that every single one of us who says that we are a follower of Jesus Christ is going to experience some form of persecution. It is inevitable that we will face this. And certainly that requires us a bit of, or requires from us a bit of reflection to understand what is Jesus talking about here and what on earth should we be looking for in terms of the persecution that we may or may not be experiencing ourselves. So, by way of introduction, I just want to say a couple of things before we dive into the beatitude itself. First of all, notice how this is such a surprise. Think about this, okay? Jesus is saying, if you exhibit all of these qualities, we saw this two weeks ago and we saw this last week as well, if you exhibit all of these qualities, then you are exhibiting my character, my nature. You are like me. I was persecuted, you will be persecuted. So the kind of person that's going to experience persecution is the kind of person who is merciful, the kind of person who is uh, pure in heart, the kind of person who is a peacemaker, the kind of person who is meek. These are the characters and these are the qualities of the kind of person that is going to be persecuted. And don't you think to yourself, wait a minute, what's up with that? I mean, isn't this the kind of person that we would all like? <laughs> 
Isn't that the kind of person that we would all like to be? Don't you think the world actually could use a few more people that are kind of like this? Now, it's true, if you go to the book of Acts, you'll discover that, that, that there were times where the church actually was received, where followers of Christ were received well by, by uh, the culture around them. So in Acts chapter 2, for example, it describes uh, the, the Holy Spirit coming on God's people and them preaching the good news. And it says that the church grew in number and they gained the favor of all the people. So there's an example of where Christians are loved by the culture in which they live. But now here, Jesus is saying that you're going to be persecuted for my name's sake, for being a follower of me, and for righteousness' sake. What is, what is he talking about? Well, he's saying this. The more that you and I become like Jesus, the more we exhibit these characteristics that Jesus held in all perfection, the more polarizing a person you will be. You'll be both more attractive to people, but you'll also be more repellent to people. You'll be more attractive to people because you're a loving person, but you'll be more repellent to people because you are also a holy person. People will be attracted by your loving kindness, but they will be repelled by your holiness. The more that God's glory shines in you, the more you be conformed to his character as, as, as evidenced in, in Jesus Christ himself, the more polarizing you will be. So that's the first thing you got to remember. The second thing you got to think about, and I just want to throw this out there, is to me, this beatitude is evidence that the Christian faith has divine origins, that it is a supernatural religion. What do I mean by that? Well, a lot of people believe that religions are basically human creations, human inventions. Throughout history, human civilizations developed religions to deal with things that they didn't understand. So, for example, pre-scientific cultures didn't understand how the world worked, etc so they came up with the idea of a god who explains things or some people will say well no it's so that that we have a crutch to get through the hardships of life life is suffering life is hard and so human beings came up with a god or a religion uh, to give them comfort and to to give them strength to face those hardships that's why religions exist Some people say, no, it was because we needed answers to these kind of like transcendent questions about meaning. You need a purpose in life. You need a reason to get up in the morning, and religion provides that. But basically, they're all human creations. They're all made up by human beings. But when you come across a beatitude like this, you got to think to yourself, why on earth would a human being ever create a religion that says, Jesus, to the leader, the founder, says, if you follow me, if you give me your life and you decide to live according to my will, etc., I promise you, you're going to face persecution. You're going to face trouble because of me. I guarantee you a life of trouble if you become a follower of Jesus Christ. And for some of you, it might mean that your life is going to have more trouble in it than it had before you became a Christian at all. And yet... Down through the centuries, millions of people 
throughout history have heard this call of Jesus Christ and have said, he told me I would be persecuted, he told me I was going to face trouble and toil and difficulty, etc. I'm still throwing my lot in with him. I'm still giving my heart to him. I'm still going to follow Jesus Christ. Because it's worth it. Now, this isn't proof. I'm not saying this is proof that Christianity is true. I'm just saying it's a piece of evidence because it's not a great sales pitch. It's not. Anybody from a marketing department in one of these big corporations or in one of these universities uh, is going to tell you, well, you don't sell you don't sell your product by promising hardship and difficulty and trouble and reviling and insult. But that's precisely what Jesus promises. And millions and millions of people have come to him in faith anyway. So these are, that's just two intro, introductory things. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at, at this beatitude together. We're going to understand four things about it, hopefully. We're going to understand uh, the fact of persecution, the cause of persecution, the response to persecution, and then the reward for persecution. So let's have a look. So first of all, the fact of persecution. I've already talked about it, but we're going to expand on it a little bit more. Notice that Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil because of, against you because of me. Notice he says when. He does not say if. He does not say, blessed are you if people persecute you. He says, blessed are you when people persecute you. In other words, it's going to happen. It's inevitable. It's guaranteed. It's certain. Now, we need to understand what Jesus means by this word persecute. It's a very interesting word. It's not used very much in the Bible or in fact in the old Greek language at all. But it has this idea of pursuing or of, of chasing. It, it, many commentators say that the best way to understand it is kind of in terms of harassment. And that's what Jesus is getting at in verse 11 when he kind of expands on what he said in verse 10. He talks about things like being insulted. Uh, when people say all kinds of false things against you. That's slander, Right? And so what we're seeing here is that persecution isn't just what typically pops up into our minds when we're thinking about persecution. We're thinking about, you know, you lose your job, you get thrown in jail, maybe you get tortured or beaten or something like that, maybe you'll even be killed. Like that's what we think of in terms of, of persecution. It still happens in places around the world, but it's not like that's the only way persecution is understood by Jesus. One scholar, he actually puts it this way, he says, he says, well, he says it includes insults and slander. Listen, persecution can go to physical extremes as the church's bloody history records. So he says, yeah, you know, there's examples of church being persecuted in an extreme way in the past. But most often, it is verbal harassment. Sometimes audible, sometimes whispered, sometimes direct, sometimes innuendo. Verbal abuse and social ostracism may call for as much heroism as braving the arena. So persecution, what Jesus is describing as persecution here, isn't just that sort of narrow, limited uh, definition that you and I might think about. It could be, yes, extreme, but it could also be far more restrained. 
you know, understated. You know, when, when, when you're at the water cooler at work and people said, so what did you do this weekend? You say, oh, I was at this church conference or I was at this retreat or something. And you get the kind of the eye roll. Oh, yeah, you're at one of your church things again. Cool. Or maybe it's uh, after the sporting event and the guys say, hey, let's go, uh, let's go to the bar. And you say, mm, no, you know, I want to go. Uh, I got to get home. I haven't seen my wife today and I really want to see her before bedtime. And uh, that's important to me. And they go, oh, you know, the old ball and chain. She's got her, you got her, got you wrapped around her finger. And you're like, no, like I'm a Christian and I love my wife and I want to serve her. And they're like, sure, 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 sure. Yeah, whatever. Little digs. You know? A whole bunch of buildings fall in Turkey because of an earthquake and someone at school or somewhere says, huh, well, where was your God for that? These are all examples of the kind of things that are included in the persecution that Jesus is describing. But, but Jesus' main point here is that everybody who follows him will know persecution at some point. In John chapter 15, he's praying, or no, he's speaking to his uh, disciples. He's not praying for them yet. He's speaking to his disciples. And listen to what he says in verses 18 and following. He says this, John chapter 15, verses 18 and following. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. This is Jesus' own words. There's a place here in uh, 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, where the Apostle Paul says very, very simply this. Anyone, no, in fact, everyone, who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. And yet we are so often surprised. We're so often surprised when, when people don't like us or when, when people give us these digs or, or when uh, even certain governmental structures are put in place to, to limit the church and limit religious freedom. We get surprised. We say, how could this happen to us? And Jesus said, don't be surprised. It's it's obvious. Now, I want to apply this, but before I do, I just want to get to the second point. Because <laughs> the application is going to come as we understand the cause of persecution. In verses 10 and 11, Jesus says these things are going to happen. Why? Because of righteousness, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And then verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Why? Because of me. Now, the righteousness Jesus is describing is all those beatitudes that come beforehand. This is a life lived according to the will of God, living the way that God wants us to live, which is following Jesus, being a picture of Jesus to the world. And that's what he means in verse 11. It's because of me. These beatitudes describe me, and when you display those beatitudes, you will get the same treatment I get. That's what he's saying. Now understand something. You can be persecuted for being obnoxious, rude, basically behaving like a jerk. But understand that that's not what Jesus is talking about here. There are people who think that, that 
that they're being persecuted for righteousness sake when actually they're being persecuted because they're quarrelsome and they're difficult and they're not very pleasant people at all. But remember, Jesus is saying, because of me you will be persecuted, then you will be a polarizing person. Your unusual, loving character is going to be attractive to people, but your unusual commitment to holiness and to living a pure life is going to be repellent to people. Think about this, okay? Jesus Christ says, I am God in the flesh. I am God's own son come down from heaven. I existed before all eternity, before time even began. I existed and I came into this world. I'm not just one who, who, who uh, I am the one, sorry, who created this universe, but I have come to be part of this universe and I will also one day judge this universe. I am God. Now, if that is true, if Jesus is God, then coming to him, putting your trust in him, that necessarily means losing control of your life. The only thing that makes sense is that you would give up everything for him and just follow him flat out wholeheartedly. Become so-called fanatical. It's really the only thing that makes sense if that's truly who he is. Now, if that's not who he is, if Jesus is a liar, or maybe he was crazy, and he had sort of this divine sense of self that didn't really exist, and he was actually just a nice guy, well, you kind of got to reject him. That's the only thing that makes sense. You got to say, you know what? Your moral teachings are in question because you're kind of cuckoo, and so we can't trust, trust what you said because of that. Or you're an out-and-out out liar, and therefore we can't trust what you said because you're morally corrupt there's no third way okay there's no in-between position there's no ability to say well jesus i think you are a good guy and i really like your your uh your moral teachings and i kind of want to follow the golden rule because that sounds like it makes sense but this whole idea of like like just casting everything off and saying i will die deny myself every day and take up my cross and follow you like that's a little too much for me it doesn't work guys can't work you look at Jesus in the New Testament and people have one, or two rea one of two reactions to him. On the one hand, there are people who see him as he is, the Son of God who came to live and die and rise again. And what do they do? They want to worship him. They want to adore him. They want to give their entire lives to him and follow him. And then the other reaction is they think that he's a blasphemer and they denounce him and they plot to kill him and they want to destroy him. Now, if you are a Christian... Jesus says in verse 12, you're a prophet. You know how it says at the end, it says, in the same way they perse persecuted the prophets who were before, he, before you. He's saying, you're, you play the role of a prophet because as a Christian, you're saying Jesus is Lord. He is the Son of God and everybody should bow the knee to him. If you're a peacemaker, remember last week, you are telling the world, listen world, you're at war with your creator. And if that's what you're doing, you're going to get the same reaction that Jesus got. You're a fanatic. You're holier than thou, you know. You're a hater. You're a bigot. You're anti-intellectual. You have checked your brain at the door. You believe all kinds of fairy stories. You'll believe anything. You'll believe in the flying spaghetti monster. You're anti-science. 
Paul, at one point in 2 Corinthians 2, he says something very interesting. He says that we are an aroma that brings death to some and an aroma that brings life to others. So now let's apply this. Well, here's the implication. If, if you're not getting persecuted in any way, if you're not feeling the pinch because you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then one of three possible things is happening. On the one hand, you are so cut off from the world and you have like no interaction with non-Christians, you have no relationship with non-Christians at all, and so you never feel the pinch. You never feel your worldview being challenged. You never feel your, your perspective being questioned. That's a possibility. Meaning you live a, a two-sheltered life. Another possibility is, is that, well, actually, you are basically kind of worldly. You're living mostly in lockstep with the world. You ever heard the phrase, you got to go along to get along? Well, maybe that's you. Right? So you laugh at the jokes. You know all the same music. You enjoy all the same entertainment. Frankly, you kind of have mostly all the same ethical opinions on many of the hot issues of the day. And when God is being mocked and you're in the kind of in the group and people are making fun of God in, in some way or making fun of all religions, you just kind of just take it. You don't believe in hell. You don't believe in judgment. You can never take a stand. That could be why. It's that you aren't righteous. Which means then you've got to ask yourself, okay, what's my relationship with Jesus really like? Do I have a real relationship with him where he is my Lord and my Savior? Or do I have a relationship with him where he is kind of an appendage to my lifestyle? And then the third possibility is maybe you're just a coward like me. And you fear suffering and you have fear of human beings. You want to be liked. You want to be loved. You don't want anybody to think weird things about you or think ill of you. I, I get that too. I actually knew a guy who was one day out with clients. So he, he had a business and he was trying to to win a contract with some new clients. And so, you know, he, this was back in the days when you still, I don't know if you guys do this anymore, if you people do this, wine and dine your potential clients, you know. So they went to a Jays game, and they had a box at the Jays game, and they had a lot of fun, and, and he was a Christian, and many of the, the, the guys he was kind of whining and dining weren't, and so they kind of had a little bit too much to drink, and he was trying to land this big contract with them, and so after the Jays game, uh, these guys said, hey, let's go, to a, let's go to an adult club. And he was like, oh boy. And he, uh, he kind of said, ah, you know, guys, it's, it's been a late night. You know, we've done a lot of things today. We had a lot of fun. Well, maybe we should just call it in. Let's, let's, let's just forget about it and tried to dissuade them. And they said, nah, come on, the night's young. Let's go have some fun. And he said, well, you know, I got a really early start tomorrow. So you guys, you're going to do your thing. You have a good time. I got to go, etc. And he was really, really worried that, 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 that they were going to take no for an, not take no for an answer. And they didn't. They continued to prod him. And so finally, he didn't know what else to do. And finally, he said, look, 
I'm a Christian and I think it's wrong. And he thought, oh boy, now I'm dead meat. Well, they made fun of him like there was no tomorrow. They tore him up. Mr. Holier than thou, such a prude, come on, what's the big deal? Whatever, he left. And they went on and did their thing. Now, the next day, he got the contract. (laughs) But he was pretty scared that he had blown it. But he was willing to blow it for the sake of his convictions as being part of this alternative kingdom that we call the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. If you work in some of these sophisticated sort of fields, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, academia, the business world, uh, finance, maybe medicine. I already mentioned the academy. You know, if you, you, you can actually, you can hurt your career if people discover that you're a Christian. Because sometimes in, in those fields, there are people who say, look, uh, I have to put my trust in this individual. And they're willing to believe in this kind of crackpot idea that there's some guy who lived 2,000 years ago who said he was God and he died for our sins. And then he, he rose again and then he like floated up into heaven in a cloud. Like this is some weird stuff. And, and that guy believes that and now I'm going to let him be my doctor. Or now I'm gonna, he's my professor. Or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invest my money, my hard-earned money with him. I have a very good friend of mine who, because he refused to sacrifice his family and his faith life for his job, he's an academic, works at a university, he has, his career has stalled. And he was a bright star when he was a young academic just starting out, and people thought this guy was going to blow the doors off his discipline and, and, and really take off. And because he loved the Lord and loved his family, he just wasn't willing to put the time in to become world-renowned in his field even though he had all the stuff to make it possible. But look what Jesus says. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad. <laughs> this, is, this is how we're supposed to respond to persecution, friends. It's bad enough that Jesus says, oh, by the way, you're going to face persecution. Just be ready for it. And then he says on top of it, and you've got to rejoice in it. Like, no whining. Don't complain. Don't wallow in self-pity over this. No, no standing up and saying, but wait a minute, my rights are being violated. I need to defend myself. I need to fight back. No, 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 none of that. Rejoice, he says. Rejoice and be glad. This is another reason this has got to be a divine religion. This is outrageous. But it's only outrageous if Jesus isn't who he says he is. Because if Jesus is who he says he is, if he is the God-man, you know what? This will make sense. And that was point three done in 30 seconds. Can you believe it? Point four, the reward. Jesus offers two rewards to those who will be persecuted. And he can only do that because he is who he says he is, the God-man. So rejoicing in your suffering or rejoicing under persecution, it's not crazy from this perspective because of who he is. And here's the two, the two rewards. First of all, when he says, 
excuse me, in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you, what he's saying is, is persecution is an authenticator of faith. It is a source of assurance. You wonder, does Jesus love me? Do I love Jesus? Am I, am I in a saving relationship with him? Is he pleased with me? You know one of the ways you're going to know that he is? You're getting persecuted. Just the same way the prophets who were before you, you are going to experience this, this same persecution. It authenticates your faith. You are in good company. But then secondly, he offers this reward. He says, your reward is great in heaven. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Great is your reward where? In heaven. Now, he doesn't say rejoice and be glad because great will be your reward in heaven. He says great is your reward in heaven. So don't think that this is some sort of weird works righteousness thing where Jesus is saying is if you get persecuted and you hold on to your faith in the middle of it, then I will give you this reward in heaven. No, he's saying you got to think about the fact that you have a reward in heaven because that is what's going to empower you to face the persecution that you deal with day in and day out. You have this reward already. You got that reward by faith. You just received it. You didn't do anything to earn it, but Jesus gives it to you by faith. It is guaranteed. And this is the biggest challenge of everything that Jesus said, because what he's doing is he's saying, let's put it all in perspective. Life, friends, is short. It's short. It's that. You are a breath. You are a vapor. You and I, we are like the morning fog that the sun burns away. By 9 a.m. it's gone. And you don't even remember it was there. That's this life. This life is so short. But you see, one day, we're all going to enter the next life. The life that really matters. The life in which when we enter into that life, into the next world, we are going to see Jesus face to face as he is. You're going to see him in all his glory, all the veils to his glory that are in front of us right now. The, the sin and, and the, the, the distraction and all those things are all going to be taken away. And we're not going to see him through these lenses that are glasses darkly, that we see through glass darkly anymore. We're going to see him in the full light of day. And he is going to be majestically glorious. And so are you. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, in a blink of an eye, we will all be changed. Into what? What is the whole Beatitudes about? It's about learning to be the kingdom citizen that Christ has called us into. And you will finally, 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 fully exhibit those qualities of the kingdom citizen that you've been living with now, you're going to be glorious. We're going to shuffle off this mortal coil. And I promise you guys that the most exhilarating pleasures of this world are going to seem bland. They're going to seem boring. They're going to see so, seem so utterly mundane. The kids would say they're going to seem so mid. It's mid, man. Compared to the glory that we are going to know in the next life.
Now, the Apostle Paul believed that deep in his bones. That's why in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he could say this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. Guys, what will the first... 30 seconds of life in the new creation be like? What's, what's the first couple hours there going to be like? What's the first day going to be like? The, the first brief moments of life in Christ's paradise they're going to erase even decades of suffering and persecution in the here and now. Do you believe that? That's why I said this is maybe the biggest challenge of all. The reward, in a sense, is the biggest challenge of all because it's so outrageous. And we spend such little time in our lives remembering that this place is not our home. Centuries ago, apparently, a man came to Tertullian. He was the great church father. This is back in the 200s, thereabouts. And because he was a Christian, his, his business interests were falling apart. He was losing contracts, and he was being blackballed in the guild and all this kind of stuff. And, and his interests in business and his interests in Jesus, they conflicted. And he was telling Tertullian all of this. And he was, finally, he got so frustrated. He said, what can I do? I must live. And Tertullian looked at him and said, must you? Must we Really? Heaven, friends, will pay for any loss we may suffer to gain it. But nothing can pay for the loss of heaven itself. Amen. Let's pray. Father, teach us to fix our eyes on Jesus and to fix our eyes on heaven. And may we remember the reward that heaven offers will not just pay us back for whatever suffering we have here. It will utterly obliterate it all. And Father, may it, that promise, may it push us to enter into those hard places and those dark places where people are in deep and profound need and share the love of Christ with them. And may we have the strength to stand up for your truth, O oh Lord. Your truth that calls us into a life of mercy. A life of purity. A life that, that reflects just an, an inexplicable love, but also an inexplicable holiness. That will both, yes attract and repel people. Thank you for your upside-down, inside-out kingdom that we are a part of. Now teach us, Lord, to live 
according to its ways. In Jesus' name, amen. I got a couple of questions here. We sometimes take questions. Oh, yeah. Hello, grade five and six students. You are free to go to Sermon Breakout. For those of you who are guests, if you have kids that age, uh, they can follow this gang to a room nearby where they're going to learn a little bit more about the message and how to apply it to their own personal lives. And they get a cool snack, too. So it's popular. Um, Here's a question. Um, Could one say that those who believe in Jesus and display the Beatitudes are filled with the Holy Spirit? I like this question a lot because I can answer with one word. Yes. Now, if you mean filled with the Holy Spirit in terms of like a second filling after conversion and stuff like that, that's a whole other ball of wax. If you just mean, if you're displaying these, Is the Holy Spirit alive and well in a person's life? And the answer is absolutely. Remember we said these are are not natural dispositions. These are supernatural qualities. We don't have these just by virtue of our personality, right? We, We display these things because the Holy Spirit has created us to live according to these principles rather than the principles of the world. Is it possible you are not being persecuted by the unbeliever that you are engaged with because you are a peacemaker? Well, last time what we said was peacemaking was calling people to be reconciled to God. That's true peacemaking because we are naturally at war. If you're a non-Christian, you need to understand you are at war with God. And if you want to know what that means, you've got to go back to last week's sermon because I can't just go and preach it again right now. Uh, so peacemaking for the believer with respect to an unbeliever is is essentially showing or helping a person understand that they are at war with God and that God is calling them to lay down their sword and enter his gracious love and submit their lives to him so that they are reconciled and at peace with one another. It could be that you, you are not at war with them because... Or sorry, what did, what did I ask? What did they ask? Or you're not being persecuted by them um, because you've you've done that, and they've asked you to stop it, right? Like you got you say your sometimes you say your piece, and then that's the end of it. I think I've told you this before. My father is a is a is a very vocal evangelist, and virtually none of his family are Christians, and so whenever he would go back to the old country and visit with them. A big part of what he was doing there was trying to share the gospel with his family members. And he had several of them who said, look, we're fine with you getting on a plane and coming over here to sit down and, and have dinner with us and, and enjoy company. But you, leave Jesus at the door, okay? And so he finally had to say, okay, I will do that. And I will pray that maybe you'll ask me. And some of them have come back and said, now I'd like to hear what you have to say. But it could also be that you are... Uh, not being persecuted because you're, as, as we got from one of the questions last week, um, you're, a, you're a peace faker. <laughs> you're not a peacemaker, you're a peace faker. That could be it too, that you're just not engaging the hard conversation that needs to be had with your loved ones. 
Um, but I can't determine that for you. You would have to determine that for yourself. Um, uh, have you, oh, here's someone, someone's asking, have you experienced hatred from the world in your role as a pastor? What is that like? Does it happen more frequently now? Um, so, not, like, certainly not the mouth, well, okay, I've had, I've had a couple occasions where, you know, I've told someone I was a pastor, or revealed to someone I was a pastor, and they took the opportunity to tell me how much they thought religion was ridiculous and Christianity was harmful and how I must be an, a terrible person, that kind of thing. But I don't actually, it's not, it's not that so much that happens to me. But what does happen to me a little, with a little more regular, regularity is that when people find out I am a pastor, the, the, you can feel the relationship has now changed. Because of my faith and because of my role, they are less comfortable with me, less at home with me, less open and vulnerable with me. Now, I've had the opposite happen as well, where people are like, oh, you're a pastor? Oh, let me just tell you everything about what's going on in my life. Um, that's happened too. But sometimes what happens is, like I said, you know, people, people get suspicious. You know, you preacher guys, used car salesman types. And I don't mean like good used car salesmen that the world is full of right now. It is. But they're, you know, the, the stereotype. So, yeah. Anyway. I will say one more thing on that. Um, more and more, the, the sense of persecution or whatever is going to happen to Christians in our Western culture when, when we... When we when we live and proclaim a, a morality that conflicts with the, the general consensus of the culture. And you know the issues that pop in your mind, right? But it's not just stuff like sex. We're talking life. We live in a, a, a country that right now is moving very quickly toward more and more open made, uh, made laws. Obviously, there's, the church has always been a staunch believer, at least the, the Bible-believing church has been a staunch believer in, in protecting unborn life. That is becoming less, uh, less and less popular, uh, in this, in, or people are becoming less and less tolerant of those kinds of differences. So just like you see people becoming more divided simply because they have different views that aren't even necessarily religiously informed, what I'm talking about is like, you know, conservatives and liberals politically and stuff like that, there's more polarization there. Certainly Christians are going to feel more of it because of our, our, our different perspective on what human flourishing looks like. We have a very, you, I know, I shouldn't start another sermon, so I'll be very brief, I promise. Understand something. At the root of our present cultural's culture's view of virtually everything is a unwavering commitment to individual autonomy. That's what's at the heart of all of this. Okay? Because you can go to other cultures in other places and you won't see the same, you won't see the same absolute commitment to, to individual autonomy and they're not dealing with nearly the, the, the ethical sort of tugs of war that we're dealing with. 
When you're a believer, you are committed at your core. You have an unwavering commitment to human dependence. <laughs> right? So we're at, at, we're at complete odds with one another. One side is saying, you got to stand up for your own rights, blah, blah, blah. And the other side is saying, you got to give up all your rights and let Jesus be Lord and follow him. And that is, that's where these clashes are going to keep happening. And so that's why I'm less inclined to spend time talking about various issues and a lot more inclined trying to convince people they need a savior. That if they would take like when people, people say, you, you Christians, what do you guys think about this issue and this issue and this issue and this issue? And I'll, I'll, I'll entertain your faith if what you think about this issue, this issue, this issue, this issue lines up with me. And I just keep saying, you know, I wouldn't worry about all that stuff right now. Let's deal, deal with Jesus. Who is he? What did he do? And do you believe that? That, all that stuff, all those things, they all flow out of the core issue. And some of them will become non-negotiable, but some of them, there will be differences, because here we are in this church with all kinds of people who have lots of different views on politics and social programs and uh, how to structure society, etc. Those are all political issues. But one thing we all share and agree on, I hope, if you're a Christian in this room, we all agree Jesus is Lord, and he calls every human on this earth to lay down their sword and open their hands and allow him to lead their lives.